The Moon's a Balloon, written and read by David Niven. CD1 Wood pigeons were calling on a warm summer evening, and my sister Grizzle and I were swapping cigarette cards on an old tree trunk in the paddock, when a red-eyed maid came and told us our mother wanted to see us, and that we were not to stay too long. After a rather incoherent interview with our mother, who was French, we returned to the swapping of cigarette cards and resumed our perusal of endless trains lumbering along a distant embankment loaded with guns and waving young men. The year was 1915. I'm afraid my father's death meant little or nothing to me at the time. Later it meant a great deal. I was just five years old. The war days sped by and our house in Gloucestershire was sold. We soon moved to London to a large damp house in Cadogan Place. Straw had been laid in the street when we arrived to make things quieter for someone dying next door. The sweaty, hearty, red-faced country squires I'd become accustomed to were replaced by pale young men who recited poetry and sang to my mother. She was very beautiful, very musical, very sad, lived on cloud nine and bravely covered up the fact that my father had left her with a mound of debts and little with which to pay them off. A character called Uncle Tommy soon made his appearance and became a permanent member of her entourage. Gradually, the pale young men gave way to pale, sad, older men. Uncle Tommy's marriage to my mother coincided with my sixth birthday. I did everything I could to wreck the show and fidgeted and picked my nose till an aquiline creature, later identified as the famous Margot Asquith, came and knelt in the aisle to comfort me. I decided she was a witch, and again and again informed the congregation of this discovery in a shrill treble. I was removed, and Uncle Tommy, forever politically sensitive, treated me from that moment on with frosty distaste. My elder brother, Henri, known as Max, was a naval cadet at Dartmouth, longing to get into the war. My elder sister, Joyce, was at home helping my mother and Grizzle had gone away to school in Norfolk. I was the youngest, and overcoming my mother's apprehensions, Tommy soon saw to it that I too was packed off to a boarding school near Worthing. I had not been long at this establishment before I discovered that life could be hell. There was a great deal of bullying, and for a six-year-old, being tied to hot radiators and watching a gang of twelve-year-olds bearing down cracking wet towels like whips could be terrifying. After two years of this purgatory, I got a large and painful boil as a result of the bad food. Oh, said the matron, that's nothing, don't make such a fuss, and lopped off the top of it with a pair of scissors. The ensuing infection was pretty horrible and put me in hospital. The next term, I was removed and sent to Heatherdown at Ascot, where I found a world of cleanliness and kindly masters, motherly matrons, green playing fields, a lake, delicious food and a swimming pool. In short, schoolboy heaven. I loved the place and tried hard to uphold the agricultural standards of the landed gentry with whom I was rubbing shoulders. Heatherdine was very upper class, and far beyond my mother's purse. Every summer, on the first Sunday after the Derby, it is not thus described in the Book of Common Prayer, that so many boys of noble birth had racehorse owner fathers, that at Heatherdown it far outranked Rogation Sunday, the Sunday after Advent, and the 21st Sunday after Trinity. A prize was given to the boy with the most beautiful garden. Each boy had one about the size of a laboratory mat in a small commercial hotel, but immense ingenuity and forethought was displayed by the owners. I could only manage a biannual crop of mustard and cress. The year that humorist won the derby saw that rare phenomenon, a drought in England, and my crop, carefully timed for the flower show, failed, burned to a crisp. By now, the self-appointed jester to the upper classes I decided to fill the gap, and creeping out of the dormitory after dark, I made my way downstairs, and flitting from tree to tree in the moonlight, arrived at a well-known gap in the wall, which separated Heatherdown from Heathfield, the girls' school next door. From preliminary reconnaissance, I knew that this gap opened onto the kitchen garden. I selected a huge vegetable marrow plant, pulled it up by the roots, and once safely back on the male side of the wall, hid it behind a piece of corrugated iron. The next morning I retrieved the marrow, and in the hubbub caused by the arrival of other boys' parents in Daimler's and Rolls-Royce's, managed to plant my prize on my poor piece of desert. It didn't go down very well. The Countess of Jersey, one of the parents, presented the prizes. She didn't give me one, and later I was caned. 
not for making a nonsense of the flower show, which could have been justified, but for stealing, which put a totally different connotation on the thing. After this, I went rapidly downhill from popular school clown to unpopular school nuisance. Striving to maintain my waning reputation, I fell in the lake and nearly drowned, purposely split the seat of my trousers on the school walk through Ascot, and was caught trying to get into the race course, a hideous crime. At long last, after one particularly provocative exploit, it was decided that the school could get along without me. I was ten and a half when I was expelled. There's a Chinese proverb to the effect that when everything in the garden is at its most beautiful, an ill wind blows the seeds of weeds, and suddenly, when least expected, all is ugliness. The decision to remove me from Heatherdown, I'm sure, was not taken lightly, because in those days, expulsion from school was tantamount to ruin for a boy of my age. Arriving in disgrace, but not, of course, realising it, on Waterloo Station at the end of the term, I was collected by a silent, imperious Tommy, who always met me and put me on the train for Portsmouth, where my mother would be waiting, to take me to our new home, a cottage in the Isle of Wight. Soon I was alone in a sooty compartment that smelled of stale smoke and orange peel, watching the retreating figure of my stepfather stalking towards the exit. Two hours later, the green Hampshire countryside gave way to the drab outskirts of Portsmouth, and as the train slowed down for its first stop, Portsmouth Town, I looked down into the busy heart of the city. Another five minutes... Ten at the most, and I would see my mother, and the holidays really would start. The train stopped. The guard opened the door, and a gigantic man in a trench coat with a magenta-coloured face and tufts of hair sprouting on his cheekbones filled the doorway. Get your things, he commanded. You're coming with me. No, sir, I quavered. My, my mother's waiting for me at Portsmouth Harbour. Don't argue. Get your bloody things. Stupefied with fear, I cowered into my corner. Oh, Christ, said the man to the guard. Get his bloody things down, will you? I'll lug him out. With that, while the guard lowered my suitcase and Macintosh, this huge creature picked me up bodily. I don't think I fought much or even cried. I was paralysed with terror. Commander Bollard ran a school for difficult boys. He was an unlovable man who fulminated constantly against the terrible injustice he'd suffered by being axed from the Navy when a promising lieutenant commander. Now, he and his thin-lipped, blue-veined, tweedy, terribly refined wife added to his meagre pension and indulged their mutual passion for pink gin by taking in a dozen or so boarders. The boarders were, without exception, pretty hard cases. Nearly all had been expelled from one or more schools and despairing parents had committed them to the tender care of Commander Mrs Bollard, hoping that stern discipline would work where kindness or indifference had so far failed. The gallant commander laid about him with a will on the smallest excuse and there was hardly a bottom in the house that did not bear witness to his Dickensian brutality. A couple of grey-faced ex-schoolmasters came every day to give us almost continuous lessons, and there were no games. We were treated like young criminals, and soon began to feel that we might just as well behave like them. On Saturday afternoons, the ship's company, as the commander liked to refer to his charges, split up into highly organised gangs of four or six, and went shoplifting for chocolate, condensed milk, cakes, batteries, flashlights and other essentials. Curly and Dusty were the two unchallenged gang leaders. I worked mostly in Curly's group. A large, foxy-faced boy with a mop of sandy hair, protruding teeth and freckles. He called the shots on Saturdays. He was a brilliant organiser, and that year had decided that as summer was coming on, thin cotton shirts and singlets would be most acceptable to our fences' regular customers, sailors, heading for the Indian Ocean, Dakar or Panama. Three weeks passed, and as a relief from the commander's crude and vicious discipline, I once spent a whole day in the brig, alone in the darkness of the cellar, listening to the rats scrabbling about among piles of old newspapers around me. Saturday afternoons became oases in the desert of my loneliness. Thrashed by the commander for the smallest offence, ill-fed, apparently deserted by my family, expelled from a well-known school, and facing my future through a bead curtain of question marks, I was, after ten years of life, already at a very low ebb. But if, dear listener, you should think that I was a victim of circumstances, a magnet for bad luck, or just plain hardly done by, I beg you also to consider the possibility that I was a thoroughly poisonous little boy. After a month under the command of Commander Bollard, his wife one day came to fetch me. The commander was lounging behind his desk. All right, you little bugger, you've been sprung. Get packed. Don't steal anybody else's stuff. 
because you go through customs here before you leave. My heart almost stopped beating. I could hardly believe it. I had a poor welcome at Rose Cottage, but it was no worse than I'd expected. It turned out that I was to be sent into the Navy, if I could pass the exams, in which very high marks would be expected. If I managed that, they might overlook my being expelled from school. In the meantime, I was sent to a crammer's in Buckinghamshire for two years. When the day of the naval entrance examination finally dawned, I was scrubbed from head to toe and dumped with several hundred other applicants in a forbidding morgue of a building next to the Burlington Arcade. All my subjects were pretty reliable except mathematics. But there was still some hope, as I'd been told that the most important part of the exam would be the interview with the Board of Admirals. The first exam was a medical one. Half a dozen at a time, we were stripped naked and to test our hearts, made to climb ropes without using our legs. Then the usual tapping of knees and peering into ears, mouths and eyes took place. Finally, get on your marks as though you're going to run a hundred yards. Once in position, a large hand grabbed our testicles from the rear. Cough, came the order. One poor little brute thought the man said off and leapt eagerly forward. He was still being rubbed with ice when I was fully dressed and waiting to be summoned by the admirals. I followed the master at arms into a long panelled room. Seated round a table was a, a drift of admirals. One or two wore beards. All were bound to the elbows with gold braid and clanking with medals. They seemed rather bored. After a few fairly inane questions, to which I gave answers of equal non-distinction, the most heavily bearded of the admirals spoke up. One further question. Why were you expelled from Heatherdown? Now, there was no point in trying to work round that one, so I put on what I hoped was the boisted-on-the-burning-deck expression. I put some dog's mess in a box, sir, and, and sent it to a sick friend. I'm afraid the matron opened it, and it flew into a cupboard. It sounded quite awful the way I said it, and a long silence followed this announcement. You thought that was funny? Yes, sir. But your headmaster did not, correct? Yes, sir. I see. Well, fortunately, we don't have dogs aboard ship. Hearty laughter greeted this sally, and I was so grateful to the old man, I quite oddly said, Thank you, sir. I believe I passed the interview, and I was bullish after most of the written papers. The last one to confront me was mathematics, and my total score in the subject was 28 out of a possible 300. Not unnaturally, the Royal Navy decided it could rub along without me. So, aged 12 and a half, it was back to the old drawing board. In May of 1923, Stowe School was established. Not as were the others by kings, archbishops or lord mayors, but by a consortium of educators and hard-headed businessmen who saw the possibilities for a new public school and hoped to make a good thing out of it. The school opened with less than a hundred boys and must be the most beautiful school in England. Golden stone colonnades, porticos by Vanborough, sweeping lawns, huge lakes, long green valleys, glorious avenues. J.F. Roxburgh, in his first public speech as the headmaster, said, Every boy who goes out from Stowe will know beauty when he sees it for the rest of his life. How true. But the apprehensive small boy who waited in the headmaster's flower-filled garden on that warm summer evening saw nothing of the architectural and landscape beauties around him. Roxburgh finally appeared. Very elegant, he seemed, with a spotted bow tie, very tall, curly hair parted in the middle. He came out through the French windows of his study and crooked his finger at me. Then he smiled, put an arm round my shoulders and led me to a stone bench. Now, my dear man, he said, you seem to have had a lot of ups and downs. Tell me all about it. I don't pretend to have total recall, but I do remember those words. I will never forget them, and I longed above all to be accepted to his school. At the end of the interview, he took me to my taxi. There he looked down at me and smiled again, and then he said, there will be 200 new boys coming next term, and you will be in Shandos house. Your housemaster will be Major Howarth. I mumbled something, then I climbed into the taxi and wept. People are sharply divided about their school days, and contrary to what one tells one's children about their being the best days of one's life, most people remember them with distaste. But at Stowe, Roxburgh dominated the scene, and I worshipped the man. The first to notice some special interest being shown by a boy, Roxburgh nurtured it, fostered it, and made the boy feel a little bit special because of it. Yet it was the extracurricular activities that commanded my time at this period. 
The memorable Easter holiday came just after my 14th birthday. Tommy's real estate operations found us for a while the inhabitants of 110 Sloan Street, a small house of many floors. Joyce and Grizzle, my sisters, both had tiny bedrooms, but there was no room for me, so I slept in a minute cubicle in a boarding house in St. James's Place some distance away. Every evening after dinner, I walked to Sloan Square, boarded a number 19 or 22 bus headed for Piccadilly, got off at the Ritz Hotel and proceeded down St. James's Street to my iron bed, wooden floor, stained jug and basin and poe under the bed. I enjoyed my nocturnal travels very much and soon gave up going straight from Sloan Street to St. James's Place and took to going all the way down Piccadilly to watch the electric signs at Piccadilly Circus. One night in Bond Street, I noticed a really superior pair of ladies' legs in front of me and I became so fascinated by them that I followed them for quite a distance. The girls seemed to have many friends and stopped and spoke to them from time to time. The next night, I skipped going to watch the electric signs and went looking for those legs again. This time, I managed to get a fairly good view of her face. She was laughing and talking, very lively, very gay, and her face looked beautiful in a, an open, fresh, English rose kind of way. You know the sort of thing. When I woke up in the morning, I knew I must be in love. It took three days, or rather nights, of patient toil and careful sleuthing before I met Nessie. I was following her at what I imagined to be a discreet distance, my eyes glued to her wondrous underpinnings, when she stopped and turned so suddenly and so unexpectedly that I nearly bumped into her. What the hell are you following me for, she demanded. I went purple. I, I wasn't following you, I lied. I was just on my way to bed. Well, for God's sake, go on home, mate. For the last four nights you've been stuck to me like my bleeding shadow. What do you want, anyway? I stammered and looked wildly to right and left. Suddenly she softened and smiled. All right, it's a bit early and you're a bit young, but come on home and I'll give you a good time. Soon she turned into her doorway and in a daze I followed, unable to believe my good fortune. A good time, she'd said. It had to be at least ginger beer and listening to the gramophone. The flat above a tailor's shop was small and smelled of cabbage. A tiny bathroom was just discernible in the gloom beyond the huge bed that seemed to sag quite a bit in the middle. Three quid, she said, as she took off her coat. I gulped and floundered. For what? For the best you've ever had, mate, but then you haven't had a lot, have you? How old are you, anyway? I was still unsure as to exactly what ground I was on, but I managed to mumble the truth. Fourteen, she practically shrieked. What the hell do you think I am, a bleeding nanny? Well, come on, let's get on with it. Fourteen! God, you are a one, aren't you? I watched, half in fascination, half in apprehension, as she walked about, taking off her little hat and blouse and unhooking her skirt. The awful truth began to filter through my brain. Then Nessie appeared in the doorway, dressed in nothing but black stockings, held up above the knees by pink garters with blue roses on them and pink high-heeled shoes. She crossed the bed and put on a record on the portable gramophone. The tune, rather naturally, has haunted me ever since. Yes, we have no bananas. As I was to discover later, Nessie had a wonderful cockney wit, but I still believe her selection at that particular moment was a random one. Get a move on, ducks. You don't get all night for three quid, you know. Get your shirt off for a start. I took off my coat and my shirt. Just a minute, she yelled, sitting bolt upright. Then she went on more gently. Come here. Come and sit on me bed. I want to talk to you. Now look me in the eyes straight. Is this the first? Have you ever done it before? Miserably, I shook my head. And you haven't got three quid either, I'll bet. Again, I shook my head and mumbled some inane explanation. Oh, you poor little bastard, she said. You must be scared out of your bleeding wits. She looked at me reflectively. Ever seen a naked woman before? No, I confessed. Well, this is what it looks like. How do you like it? I smiled weakly and tried not to lower my eyes. Nessie snuggled down and started to giggle again, a deliciously infectious sound. Well, you've got this far. Why don't you take the rest of your clobber off and pop into bed? Yes, we have no bananas, was substituted for something a little more encouraging. The bedside lamp with the red shade was left on, and Nessie, with her wondrous skin, became a most understanding teacher. Among other things I learned was that she was only 17 herself. Back at school for the summer term, I found that my life had changed fundamentally. Nessie, or the thoughts of Nessie, became the focal point of my existence. 
What I saw in her was fairly obvious, but there were other things too. Quite apart from the normal and very special physical attachment to the first, she gave me something that so far had been in rather short supply. Call it love, understanding, warmth, female companionship, or just ingredient X. Whatever it was, it was over me like a tent. In the summer of 1926, by now a robust 16-year-old and um, appreciably ahead of my time in worldly experience, I had to overcome a slight hazard, the school certificate. I was to sit for this examination in two weeks' time. It was sort of a long shot, really. If I failed this first time, I would still have three more chances, but I had to obtain a certificate soon in order to qualify to sit for the entrance examination to the Royal Military College Sandhurst, 18 months hence. Apart from the dreaded mathematics, I was quite confident that I could pull it off this first time. In fact, everything was roses for me. Then that damn wind started puffing those weeds in my direction once more. I sat for the exam in the big school gymnasium and made mincemeat of the first five papers. I was supremely confident. The last two tests were mathematics and Latin translation. In mathematics, a credit, about 80%, was obligatory. Without it, I would fail the whole exam. When the questions were put on my desk, one glance was enough. It was hopeless. I knew that I just couldn't cope. And there is no more suffocating feeling than that when sitting for a public examination. I was the first boy to hand in his answers and leave the gymnasium. I went out to the cricket nets and faced the fact that the school certificate was certainly not going to be mine this time. Nessie was coming to see me the next day, a Saturday, and her train was due at Buckingham Station at midday. The Latin exam was scheduled from 10 o'clock till 11.30, so I decided to get through with this now useless and unprofitable period as quickly as possible, pedal down to the station and surprise her there instead of meeting her as planned near the Corinthian Arch at 12.30. The trick then was to complete the whole paper in half the time and be on my way to Buckingham Station. Archie Montgomery Campbell was a good and outstanding friend who occupied the desk on my right during the whole week of exams. He was also an excellent Latin scholar, so I um, enlisted his help. It was clearly understood between us that if anything went wrong, Archie would merely say that it had been nothing to do with him. The dirty work was to be done by me alone. He was to be blameless. It all went beautifully according to plan, and Nessie and I spent a blissful day together eating shrimp paste sandwiches and sausage rolls, drinking shandygaff and um, rolling around on a tartan rug. When Nessie went back to London after these outings, I always felt terribly lonely. I loved walking about the fields and woods with her. I'd never seen anyone get such real pleasure out of trees and flowers and birds, and it gave me a feeling of great importance to be able to point out different animals and tell her about life in the country. In the chapel, about three weeks after Nessie's visit, Roxburgh motioned the boys to remain in their places. Only the most important announcements were made in chapel, and an expectant murmur arose. All over the country, he began, overworked examiners have been correcting several thousand papers sent in for this year's school certificate examinations. Stowe is a new school, and these same examiners have been looking at the papers sent in by us with special interest. It is therefore with grief and great disappointment that I have to tell you that two boys representing Stowe in the school certificate have been caught cheating. I shall question the two concerned this evening and I shall deal with them as I see fit. Only when I saw Archie Montgomery Campbell's ashen face did the horrible truth sink in. As the school rose to leave the chapel, my legs turned to water. Poor Archie was the first to be summoned to the headmaster's study. He went off like Sidney Carton at the end of A Tale of Two Cities. A quarter of an hour later, I was located near the lavatories where I had been spending the interim. No smile on Roxburgh's face this time, just a single terse question. Have you anything to say for yourself? For the lack of any flash of genius that might have saved me, I told him the truth. He stared at me in silence for a long time. Cheating in a public examination is a heinous crime, and it seemed inevitable that my days at Stowe had come to an end. I braced myself for the news. Montgomery Campbell made a stupid mistake in helping you with your Latin translation and I have given him six strokes of the cane. Until you stood there and told me the truth, I had every intention of expelling you from the school. However, in spite of your very gross misbehavior, I still have faith in you, and I shall keep you at Stowe. Now I propose to give you twelve strokes of the cane. 
My joy at not being thrown out was quickly erased by the thought of my short-term prospect. Twelve? That was terrifying. Roxborough was a powerfully built man, and his beatings, though rare, were legendary. The first three or four strokes hurt so much that the shock somehow cushioned the next three or four, but the last strokes of my punishment were unforgettable. When the bombardment finally stopped, I flung open the door and shot out into the passage. As the pain subsided, mortification set in. How was I going to face the other boys? A cheat. Eventually, about bedtime, I crept up to my dormitory. The usual pillow fights and shouting and larking about were in full swing. They died away to an embarrassed silence as I came in. I took off my blood-soaked clothes, watched by the entire room. When everyone was in bed and quiet, the housemaster appeared in the dormitory door. I have an announcement to make, a message from the headmaster, he said. It is as follows. I have interviewed the two boys connected with the school certificate irregularities. Their explanations have been accepted by me and the boys have been punished. The incident is now closed and will not be referred to again by anyone. I determined there and then that somehow I would repay Roxburgh. I never could, of course. But I became, I think, a good and responsible monitor the next term. And in due course, after squeaking past a mathematical barrier, I passed into the Royal Military College Sandhurst and became one of the first three stowboys to gain commissions in the regular army. Life at Sandhurst was tough, but it was exhilarating and the cadets were a dedicated corps of elite. Some went on to command divisions and even armies. Several among the dignified Sikhs and Pathans became leaders of their countries, but a heartbreakingly high percentage were destined in little more than ten years' time to meet death on the beaches, deserts and hillsides of World War II, for this was the vintage of soldiers that suffered most heavily when the Holocaust came. But if the work was hard, so was the play. Cadets in their senior term were allowed motor cars, and a few well-heeled young men could be seen whizzing up the Great West Road, London-bound for weekends, in an assortment of jalopies. Jimmy Gresham in my platoon owned a Hillman Husky, and was most generous about giving his friends lifts. A very bright fellow, destined for the Welsh Guards, he was highly resilient when it came to contretemps. For some misdemeanour, he was not allowed to use his car for several weeks, but he solved this temporary inconvenience by keeping a chauffeur's uniform and a false moustache at White's Garage in Camberley, and our weekly forays to the capital continued without missing a beat. My liaison with Nessie continued more or less full-time, all through my year and a half at Sandhurst. She still insisted that pretty soon I'm going to get off the game, find a nice fellow and go off to the Fiji Islands. In the summer term, she came down for the June Ball, the big social event of the year, and I basked in her beauty as we waltzed and foxtrotted round the dusty gymnasium to the fluctuating rhythms of the Royal Military College Band. Looking back on that period, I now realise that at 18, with Britain torn by unemployment and strikes, I must have been, by today's standards, a very square member of a very square group. It had long been decided that no stone would be left unturned for me to be commissioned into the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders once I had successfully passed out of Sandhurst. When I sat for the final exams, I discovered with pleasure, mixed with some surprise, that they came quite easily to me. My entry into the Argyles seemed purely a formality. Everything in the garden was beautiful, a fatal situation for me. Just before the end of term, all candidates who were graduating were given a war office form to fill in. Name, in order of preference, three regiments into which you desire to be commissioned. I wrote as follows. One, the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders. Two, the Black Watch. And then, for some reason I never fully understood, possibly because it was the only one of the six Highland regiments that wore trues instead of the kilt, I wrote, three, anything but the Highland Light Infantry. Somebody at the war office was funnier than I was, and I was promptly commissioned into the Highland Light Infantry. And so it was, the following January, I found myself on a ship filled mostly with service families heading for Egypt, India, and the Far East. The vessel was named the Kaiseri Hind, and I was destined for Malta. Nessie came to see me off, and I'm sad to say that was the last time I ever saw her. Mine was rather a daunting prospect, being abroad for the first time in my life, joining a regiment in which I did not know one single soul, taking command of a platoon of hardened professionals, many of whom had been soldiering abroad for a dozen years or more, 
all under the watchful eyes of brother officers, who I gathered were not going to be any too helpful, and my 19th birthday still some way off. The officers' mess in Floriana Barracks in Malta was glued to the side of a huge church, which housed the biggest and busiest and noisiest bells in Malta. They were banging away as we arrived. It was a Sunday. The orderly officer met me at the door. Yells, bells and smells. That's how the jocks describe Malta, he roared above the din, signalling to me to drop my two pieces of hand luggage. He led me inside a courtyard. We passed through a door in a far corner, and I found myself in a monstrosity, typical of the living quarters of British army officers at home and abroad. Over a few drinks, he morosely painted thumbnail portraits of the senior officers and ended by giving the following advice. The only people you have to look out for are the colonel, the adjutant, your company commander, and, of course, Trubshaw. Trubshaw, I asked. Trubshaw, yes, look out for him. He's nothing but trouble. If it hadn't been for us covering up for him, he'd have been flung out months ago. He's a disaster. Which company is Trubshaw in, I asked. B Company, thank God. They're over there on the other side of the Grand Harbour in Fort Rakazali. He's confined to barracks anyway at the moment, so he's practically locked up, and a good job too. The following morning, I avoided the mess as I was extremely apprehensive of meeting brother officers on an empty stomach, and fortified by early tea, I was escorted across the granaries past the guardroom, across the barrack square, and deposited outside the door marked Adjutant's Office. Henry Hawkins, the adjutant, smiled up from behind his desk. Shaking down all right? Very strange at first, I know. Incidentally, when you were first posted to us, some joker at the war office sent us a memo about you. Something about your, um, preference for regiment. My sweating increased a hundredfold. Hawkins never looked up. He continued signing documents. It came directly to me, and it's now locked up in the adjutant's confidential file. Nobody else can see it. Then he looked up put down his pen, and smiled again. Now, let's go and see the colonel. I never discovered whether the colonel thought it was impressive, or whether he was shy, or whether he just didn't know what the hell to say, but for whatever reason, he preferred to address the junior officers of his battalion through an intermediary. The next afternoon, I was ordered to play cricket for the battalion, and told to present myself at the Marza cricket ground. The heat was like a blast furnace. A jovial deaf major, the shape of an avocado, called with heavy humour Roundy by his contemporaries, greeted me and introduced me to the rest of the team, mostly elderly sergeants and young officers. They seemed a friendly and cheerful lot, and I began to relax. Suddenly, an ear-splitting belch rent the air. I spun round and perceived a truly amazing sight. Trubshaw was approaching. Six feet six, with legs that seemed to start at the navel encased in drainpipe tight white flannels, he sported a blue blazer with so many brass buttons on it that he shone like a gypsy caravan on Derby Day, on his head the Panama hat with MCC ribbon, on his face the biggest moustache I had ever seen, a really enormous growth, which one could see from the back on a clear day. My dear fellow, boomed this splendid apparition, welcome, I am delighted to meet you. A row of very white teeth blazed out of the foliage as Trubshaw shook my hand. This old man, said Trubshaw, tapping a briefcase he was carrying, is an invention of mine. It's called the Dipsomaniac's Delight. He flicked the lock, and inside, set in green baize slots, I perceived a bottle of whiskey, a soda water siphon, and two glasses. And in the heat of that blazing afternoon, I downed what was to be the forerunner of many thousands of toasts in the company of this amazing and wondrous creature. The match was drawn that afternoon, but not because our team was of the same standard as our opponents. A hard drive to Midorf had just connected with a horrible crack just below a fielder's knee when a dispatch rider roared onto the field. Roundy gathered both teams together and somberly told us to return to our barracks at once. The situation caused by the Italian-inspired troublemakers which I had been told about on the day of my arrival had deteriorated rapidly, and we were to stand by for riot duty and for the guarding of important points against a possible coup. For hours that night, nothing happened. Then some confused shouting around midnight heralded a half-hearted attack by a few hooligans armed with stones and iron bars. A jock standing next to me was hit on the steel helmet with a loud clang. Fuck that for a comic song, he roared and charged out with his bayonet flashing in the moonlight. That was the last appearance of any opposition, and incidentally, the one and only piece of active service I was to take part in 
during four years with the Highland Light Infantry. The first regimental guest night which I attended was quite simply a nightmare. As the newly joined subaltern, in a sort of travesty of welcome, I was ordered to sit at the colonel's right hand. About 40 officers were present, including a few guests. Greville Stevens, ADC to the governor, an amusing pink-faced, sandy-haired captain in the 60th Rifles, known locally as the Amorous Prawn, a brace of admirals, an air marshal, some assorted soldiers, and two naval guests of Trubshaw's, a Lieutenant Anthony Pladel Bouvery, and a midshipman David Kelburn, two, incidentally, of the brightest young men ever to put on naval uniform. Round after round of drinks in the anteroom, and finally, just as I was headed for a most necessary trip to the lavatory, Mr. Gifford, the mess butler, announced dinner. Like a lamb to the slaughter, I was led with bursting bladder to my chair next to my commanding officer. As he had still not spoken to me directly during my service, I was in no position to ask him if I might be excused. An unthinkable request, as officers never left the table under any circumstances until the end of the meal, when the king's health had been drunk. Sweat broke out all over me as I contemplated the hours of agony ahead. I've long since forgotten who sat on my right, whoever he was. He, too, never directed a word in my direction. So I sat there, miserable in silence, with crossed legs, perspiration trickling down inside my stiff shirt front, my stand-up wing collar wilting with pain. Cold soup, more strain on the bladder, was followed by other courses, each one washed down by different wine. I drank everything in sight, in the vague hope that something might act as an anaesthetic and reduce the torture. By the time we arrived at the cheese, I was desperate, past caring. As far as I was concerned, my career could end in a pool, right there under the polished mahogany and the regimental silver. But succour was at hand. Mr Gifford bent over me and whispered in my ear, with Mr Trubshaw's compliments, sir, I have just placed an empty magnum beneath your chair. Relief, when I heard his words, did not flow over me. It spurted out of me, in an apparently endless stream. But thanks to a firm grip on the bottle with my knees, I was able to aim with one hand and leave the other available to crumble, nonchalantly, a water biscuit. After the royal toast, the mess pipers filed in, eight in number. From the top drone of each instrument fluttered a heavily embroidered silken banner, the coats of arms of the senior regimental officers present. The eardrums of the diners, particularly those of the Sassanac guests, were subjected in the confined space of the dining room to a veritable barrage of sound. Round and round the table marched the pipers, and round and round the table went the port, the brandy, the kimmel, and the drambuie. Finally, after the pipe major had played his solo pibroch, the hauntingly lovely desperate battle of the birds, the colonel tottered from the room, followed by the survivors, who then indulged in a monstrous barging match punctuated by wild cries which passed for highland reels. These, in turn, further deteriorated into a competition to see who, by using the furniture, could make the fastest circuit of the anteroom without touching the floor. Trubshaw, Pale Bouvery, Kelburn, and myself left in some alarm when a visiting air commodore ate a champagne glass whole, stem and all, and the majors decided to have a competition to see which one could pick up a box of matches off the floor with his teeth while balancing a bottle of champagne on his head. In the months that followed, my military ambitions suffered a certain seepage, as slowly but surely it dawned upon me that there was very little point in being a keen young officer, because promotion was automatic and very, very distant. However, there was so much new, so much to enjoy, that it was almost two years before the deadening horror of the whole thing finally descended upon me and enveloped me like a black Bedouin tent. In the meanwhile, Trubshaw's guidance continued apace. He explained to me that I could hire polar ponies for 15 shillings a month, and that apart from buying some mallets, I had nothing to worry about financially, the grooms being soldiers and the ponies all being on the regimental strength as officers' charges. All this was indeed true and I found myself quite soon with as many mounts as I could play and quite a respectable handicap. The Mars Polo Club was the smart place to be. Smart in the most colonial sense of the word, it was mounted suburbia. It was parasols and freightfully refined voices. It was, boy, bring me a stinger. And naval wives who announced with a smirk, ooh, we're going in to have our bottoms scrub next week. But it was still heady stuff compared with what I'd been exposed to before, and I thrived on it.
Girls there were in plenty, apart from the resident ones, daughters of senior officers and officials. There were also, for several months a year, hundreds of young and lonely naval officers' wives. The fleet was sailing for several weeks of exercises off the Greek islands, leaving behind literally hundreds of ladies in different stages of availability. I discussed the situation with the wife of the signals officer of a destroyer, who had made it very obvious that she had no intention of sitting around twiddling her thumbs during his absence. It was a nasty little intrigue, really, but quite exciting, especially when the husband gave a party in his cabin before he sailed and said to me, Look after Eunice for me till I get back. I certainly will, I said, avoiding her eye. When sailing time came, Eunice and I climbed to the top of the cliffs and watched the splendid spectacle of the entire Mediterranean fleet steaming out of the harbour, Royal Marine bands playing and bunting fluttering. We used my field glasses and paid particular attention to her husband's destroyer. He was on the bridge. We'd told him where we'd be watching from, and with his binoculars he found us. Lots of waving went on, and we even staged a big amorous embrace to make him laugh. I wish I could report that I felt a twinge of shame at that moment, but um, I didn't. I had other feelings of a more animal nature to contend with. The fleet sailed away into the sunset and disappeared over the horizon, bearing the poor cuckold to be towards Corfu. Never has a safer stage been set for infidelity. But Eunice was in no rush and decided to savour the moment. After all, we had at least six weeks ahead of us in which to indulge ourselves, so she insisted that I take her to the steamer club to a party with some others, escort her home to her house, and, uh, and then... <clears throat> so, we danced close and drank champagne and toasted each other over the rim of our glasses, all very high-powered romantic stuff. Finally, I found myself in her bed. Some far from routine thrashing around went on, because Eunice was an expert at prolonging everything, when suddenly she went rigid. Christ, she hissed, he's back. He was, too, and downstairs in the sitting room. Get in that cupboard, ordered Eunice. It was pretty ridiculous because my clothes were all over the floor, but I did as I was told, and I stood quaking in a black hole that smelled of mothballs. I didn't have time to reflect on the old French farce situation that I was in. All I could think of was the certain death that would soon be coming up those stairs. Eunice was made of different stuff. She went down naked to meet him. Darling, how did you get back? Stripped a bloody turbine thirty miles out, towed in. Somehow she persuaded him to get in the car and go and get a bottle of champagne so they could celebrate. I dressed in about eleven seconds, and with my shoes on the wrong feet, shot downstairs and out of the house. I was impotent for days. One sad day, Henry Hawkins, the adjutant, was promoted to major, and his place was taken by the weasel. Now, the weasel was a most unsavoury piece of work. Yellow teeth protruded from beneath a small nicotine-stained moustache, and a receding chin did nothing much to help a pair of shifty eyes that were pinned together like cufflinks above a beaky nose. On his thin chest, there were no medals for valour. He was never openly hostile to me until one day when platoon training was at its height. I was given the task of attacking a small hill across a mile and a half of completely barren land. The colonel, accompanied by the second-in-command and several other officers, was on top of the hill. As we marched down the dusty road to our start point, out of sight in a dip, my platoon sergeant and I held a council of war. At all costs, we must try to avoid cutting ourselves to pieces, crawling in full view across a mile and a half of razor-sharp volcanic outcrop. The road, too, was in full view, and so dusty that the approach of a goat sent a cloud of tell-tale white puffs billowing into the sky. Salvation, however, in the shape of a half-empty bus, stood waiting in the hollow as we descended below the line of vision of the group on the hill. Road inclusive had been the weasel's orders, so, blessing my good fortune, I judiciously scattered the platoon about the bus. Some lay on the floor with the goats, and shielded from view by the black, tent-like confections on the lady passengers' heads, the whole platoon motored peacefully past the unsuspecting brass. Half a mile behind them, there was another dip in the road. There we debussed, and with their backs towards us, our quarry were easy to stalk. Thirty yards from the group, while our two Lewis guns happily opened up with their football rattles, the rest of us charged with fixed bayonets and blood-curdling yells. Perhaps I overdid it a little on arrival by saying to a stunned weasel, Bang, bang, you're dead. Not only did he give me a monumental bollocking in front of my own men, calling me, among other things, a bloody boy scout, but he sent us at the double, 
a mile and a half to our original starting point and then made us crawl back across those damn volcanic razors. Far from holding this purgatory against me, the jocks said they'd enjoyed the whole day hugely, and the episode was ever after referred to as the desperate battle of the bus. My 21st birthday came and went, and I was still on that island. Every day it seemed to get smaller. But one great boredom reliever was the fancy dress ball in the opera house. It was a predictable show. Admirals dressed as Pierrots, their wives as Columbines, bow peeps were plentiful, and there was a sprinkling of old bills and Felix the Cats among the military. Parties took boxes in the lovely tiered building, and everyone tried hard to pretend that it was every bit as gay and abandoned as the Chelsea Arts Ball. Trubshaw and I went as goats. First we put noisome rugs on our backs. Then horns on bands were fixed to our heads. And finally, between our legs for the um, goat fittings, footballs swung with rubber gloves sewn onto them by the regimental cobbler. Half a pint of dry martinis apiece, and we were ready for the fray. We arrived just in time for the grand march for the prize-giving. The judges for the best costumes were on the stage, and round and round in front of them, two by two, like the animals going into the ark, went the clowns with their red-hot pokers, the ballet dancers, and the Mickey mice. Rumblings of disapproval rose from the boxes as the two drunken goats joined in at the back of the parade. Trubshaw, hmm, Niven, hmm, goats, hmm, bad show, damn bad show. Military moustaches and naval eyebrows bristled from every floor. I'm getting dizzy, old man said the goat behind me after we'd completed several circuits. Left wheel. Obediently, I turned out of the parade towards the empty centre of the floor. Now squat, commanded Trubshaw. What? I asked apprehensively. Squat, you bloody fool. So there, at the very hub of the wheel, with the kaleidoscope of colour circling around us, and the focus of hundreds of disapproving eyes, I squatted. Trubshaw produced a brown paper bag from the folds of his smelly rug, and sprinkled black olives on the floor immediately behind me. Except in the box that held David Kelburn and Anthony Pladelbouvery, this flourish was coldly received by the ticket holders, particularly by a party of Maltese students who had a very short fuse when they thought that someone was mocking the local institutions. They jostled and shoved us as we left the floor and made threatening noises. Better take off, old man, said my leader as he headed for the exit, and the last I saw of Trubshaw that night he was pounding down the main street of Valletta towards the sanctuary of the Union Club, pursued by the Hornet students and tripping over his udders. We were confined to barracks for that uh, little adventure, but the boredom of our incarceration was soon relieved by the arrival of a whole new spate of rumours. This time they had a ring of truth to them. The quartermaster was seen checking the winter stores, and in the transport lines Sergeant Fensom hinted darkly that he'd heard we might have to find some buyers for the animals. The weasel was seen strutting around, obviously having tucked into a sizable canary. In fact, the battalion had been ordered home to the British Isles, to the citadel barracks Dover. It was like some gloriously prolonged end of term, and when the evacuation order was finally given, the whole battalion set about their allotted tasks with a willingness I had not hitherto seen. Sixty Smith, my company sergeant major, who had become my friend and adviser, was ill in hospital. It had started with sandfly fever, then complications, and now he was much more sick than anybody realised. Pleurisy had set in, and there was no question of him sailing home with the rest of us. I went to see him the day before we embarked on the troop ship, and I was shocked by his appearance. Would you ask the colonel for a, a favour for me, sir? Would you ask if the battalion could march a wee bit out the road on the way to the docks, so I can hear the pipes for the last time? It's nae far, about five minutes. I suddenly felt chilly in the warm little room. What the hell are you talking about, Sixty, hearing the pipes for the last time? Because I'm going to D, Sixty replied quietly, and I found it impossible to look into his clouded eyes. The weasel was oddly sympathetic to the request, and when he gave me the answer, he told me that the colonel had added that he would like me to be with the old man when the troops passed the hospital the following day. It was late afternoon when they passed, and the sun was golden on the church spires that Sixty could see from his bed. In the distance, he could hear the swinging march, We are hundred pipers, and he asked me to prop him up in his bed. Nearer and nearer came the battalion, and as he lifted his head to listen, 
he must have been thinking of a whole lifetime in the regiment he'd joined as a boy. Just before the column reached the hospital, the tune changed. Changed to the regimental march, Scotland the Brave. And tears of pride slid down his granite cheeks. He sat bolt upright till the last stirring notes faded away into the distance. Then he slid down into his bed and turned his face to the wall. That night, Sixty died. We arrived in the Citadel Barracks Dover a few days before Christmas. It was a place of undiluted gloom. A grass-covered fortress, high in the mist above the slate-roof Victorian horror of the town below. But as we marched into the barracks on that drizzly December evening, there was not a man among us who did not rejoice. In the spring of 1934, my grandmother died. For years she had lived in rooms in Bournemouth, and as children my sister Grizzle and I had paid her annual visits, travelling from the Isle of Wight on a paddle steamer as day trippers. She left me two hundred pounds in her will. I immediately invested about half of this windfall in a second-hand Morris Cowley and gleefully entered the London social scene. I soon found myself on Mayfair hostesses' lists, and every post brought its quota of invitations to debutante parties or weekends in smart country houses. Dover being near to London and weekend leave plentiful, I indulged myself to the hilt with the minimum of outlay. One evening at a dance I met Barbara Hutton, the Woolworth heiress. She was spending a few weeks in London with her uncle Frank, and at the time she was engaged to Alec Devani, a Georgian prince who was to be her first husband. A gay and sparkling nineteen-year-old, full of life and laughter, she became a great ally at some of the more pompous functions. When she left London, she made me promise to come to New York for Christmas, an invitation as lightly made as it was lightly taken. In November, I was sent on a physical training course for several weeks at Aldershot. One night, I was called to the telephone, and I found myself talking to my stepfather, Tommy, to whom I'd not spoken for over three years. Your mother is very ill, he said. She's in a nursing home in London, and you should come and see her immediately. I quickly obtained leave and rushed to Queen's Gate. Although I'd only seen her a few weeks before, she was so ravaged by cancer that I was utterly and completely horrified by what I saw. She did not recognize me before she died. I simply couldn't comprehend what had happened. I'd never had to cope with a loss of this magnitude, and I endlessly chastised myself for always taking her presence for granted and for not doing much, much more to make her happy, and for not spending more time with her when I could so easily have done so. And it was then that I remembered Barbara Hutton's invitation. It had been suggested that I should go far away somewhere and be with people who could not remind me of what was a annoying feeling of guilt. In reply to my cable, asking if she'd really meant it, I received one which said, Come at once, love Barbara. And so, ten days before Christmas, I embarked on the one-class liner SS Georgic and throbbed my way to New York. Throbbed was the word. I had the cheapest berth in the ship, directly above the propellers. I do not have the impertinence to try and describe a first impression of the New York skyline, because no one I've ever read has done it justice so far. But that forest of gleaming white set against an ice-blue sky is something I will never forget. Barbara Hutton's family lived on Long Island, but for a townhouse they utilized several suites in the Pierre Hotel. I was given a very nice room there, and Barbara, the perfect hostess, made it clear that she hoped I would spend as long as I liked there, but feel perfectly free to come and go as I wished. The days in New York passed in a blaze of parties, speakeasies and nightclubs, with daytime forays to visit people on Long Island, sometimes in specially chartered and bar-equipped motor buses. There were also boxing matches and ice hockey games to see at Madison Square Garden, big Broadway musicals to visit, great bands and singers to listen to. The parties and the hospitality reached a crescendo, until finally I crawled aboard a German liner, the Europa, and made for another rabbit hutch of a cabin in the bowels of the ship. As I unpacked, I realized, with a tinge of guilt, that I'd hardly thought about my mother. Oh, the callousness of youth. I had tasted the flesh pots. In fact, I'd stuck all my trotters in the trough and I'd gorged myself. It had all been too rich for my blood. And in a welter of false values, I knew that one day, somehow, I would go back to America. 
Trubshaw was on his last legs, militarily. Can't go on much longer, old man. It's all getting too much like the army. He's hunting four days a week and checking on the young pheasants for me. He kept to his decision, and by midsummer, he had left the regiment and married Margie MacDougall. The junior officers, non-commissioned officers and men of the battalion were sad to see him go. The senior officers had uh, mixed feelings. For me, it was a disaster, compounded when almost immediately over half of my platoon were drafted to India, and I was sent on a course to the machine gun school at Netheraven. Gloom descended on me like a blanket. I spent a great many weekends at Ascot with my friends the Weigels, who took a great interest in my future. Sir Archie and Lady Weigel thought it fitting that I should go to Australia as ADC to the Governor-General, but the Governor-General had um, other ideas. Luckily, their daughter Priscilla had other ideas too. You should be a movie actor, she declared flatly, and promptly went to work. First, she introduced me to my boyhood hero, the great Douglas Fairbanks. A chronic Anglophile, Fairbanks was enjoying a period of playing the country squire and had rented Mims, a lovely Queen Anne house in Hertfordshire. Next, she presented me to Bunty Watts, a producer at Sound City, a minute studio nearby. And one Sunday, I appeared in front of the cameras as an extra in a racing film, All the Winners. Greatly to Priscilla's disappointment, I was not immediately signed to a million-pound contract, and I returned to Netheraven in time for parade on Monday morning. But that morning was the harbinger of military doom. I had escorted Priscilla to a dance and a nightclub the night before, and I screeched up in my car, only just in time to take off my tail coat, jump into my brown canvas overalls, cram my Glengarry on my head, and pick up a hideously heavy tripod before my name was called on early parade. <coughs> Present, sir, I puffed. All morning we laboured, putting a Vickers Mark IV machine gun together and then taking it to pieces again. All right, gentlemen, said the chief instructor, a full colonel. It's a very warm day. You may remove your overall jackets and work stripped to the waist. Sighs of relief all round as the officers peeled. Mr. Niven, you may remove your overalls, said the chief instructor. Um, no, thank you, sir. I have a, a sniffle. Remove your overalls, Mr. Niven, ordered the colonel. Yes, sir. And there I stood, in the middle of Salisbury Plain, unveiled in white tie, stiff collar, shirt and white waistcoat. Glengarry still on my head. After that, I was a marked man. The end, militarily speaking, came for me on another stiflingly hot day during the last week of the course. In a hot tin-roofed lecture hut, a visiting Major General was droning on about fields of fire, close support and trajectories. Blue bottles were buzzing about, and my head was nodding. Finally, he closed his notes. Any questions, gentlemen? My hand went up. I will never know what prompted me to do it. Four years of frustration, I suppose. But I opened my mouth, and I heard myself say, Could you tell me the time, please? I have to catch a train. Stand up, that officer. I stood. Your name? I told him. Go to your quarters and remain there. I departed. Soon, an officer of the sea force of the same rank as myself joined me in my room. Ominously, he was wearing a sword. He was very embarrassed. I'm afraid I've um, been told to um, stay with you, he said. Close arrest, I asked. Looks like it, he said. After about an hour, with an exasperated flourish, he took off his sword. This is bloody ridiculous, he said. Let's have a drink. Later, when the whole bottle had been downed, he said, I've got a great idea. I'll go to the lavatory, which I badly need to do, and you escape. But the beauty and the simplicity of this plan would have shamed Field Marshal Montgomery's famous left hook at El Alamein. That night at White's Club, I dined with two ex-guards officer friends who listened attentively while I told them what had happened. With the port came the inquest. Finally, beneath a disapproving portrait of the Duke of Wellington, the jury returned its verdict. There can be no question that you're through in the army, said Philip, but Victor here has a possible solution. Victor, lately married to a Canadian girl, then spoke. I'm sailing on the Empress of Britain tomorrow to pick up Diana from her parents' island in the Rideau Lakes. Then I'm off to Washington. Pay me whatever you can afford, and I'll give you a return ticket to Quebec. Come and stay on the island for a week or two, and you can decide what to do next. I was stunned by my good fortune. Now we'll go downstairs, said Philip, and you can write your colonel your resignation. Below, by the porter's desk, I wrote out a cable. 
to the Citadel Barracks, Dover. Dear Colonel, request permission, resign commission. Love, Niven. I sailed for Canada in the morning. Diana Kingsmill Gordon Lennox was a rarity, a genuine Canadian eccentric. Dark, with beautiful teeth and a lovely smile, she was highly intelligent, smoked small cigars and wore a monocle. Diana seemed not at all put out that Victor had arrived with an unknown friend. They took me on excursions into the back country and we discussed my future endlessly. Return to England? Hardly. Because of my lack of a training in any peaceful profession, the chances of employment seemed less dim in the US than in Canada. So when the time came to move on, I made up my mind to cash in my return trip ticket and cast my lot in New York. I finally made it there by train. It was mid-October and becoming exceedingly cold. I found a room in a cheap hotel on Lexington Avenue, the Montclair, and for a week, cut down by flu, I lay in bed without the energy to pick up the telephone to try and find some of last year's companions. Finally, I began to make contact with the old group, and although they went through the motions of being pleased to see me, I soon realized that there was a big difference between an irresponsible young man over for a short holiday and an anxious young man badly in need of a job. The background was none too welcoming for a foreigner either. The United States was still in the grip of the Depression, and there were millions of United States citizens unemployed. I could not have chosen a worse time for my arrival. However, good health can overcome the gloomiest thoughts, and as my strength returned, my morale improved. I registered with an employment agency and picked up a few dollars here and there, working at night for catering companies who handled cocktail parties. John McLean, the reporter whom I'd met on my first trip, was doing better. He'd just been given a daily column to write for The Sun, Up the Gangplank, interviews with interesting arrivals on the ocean liners. One day, McLean had a brainwave. Look, he said, prohibition is repealed, and in a few days, all booze becomes legal. Jack and Charlie's speakeasy are going to become wine merchants. Maybe they'll give you a job. I'll have a word with them. The first day at work, Jack Crindler sent me to FBI headquarters to have my fingerprints taken and to be photographed with a number round my neck. And to this day, in Jack and Charlie's The Wine Merchants, is that picture of me. Underneath is written, our first and worst salesman. An awful lot of awful things happened in 1934, but I had a funny feeling that things might be going to get better when one evening in early January I ran into Tommy Phipps, an old friend from England. There were three famous Langhorn sisters from Virginia, all very beautiful. One married Dana Gibson, the artist, and became the prototype of the Gibson girls. Another, Nancy, married Lord Astor and became Britain's famous female member of parliament. The third, Nora, the youngest and the gayest, married an English army officer, Paul Phipps. Tommy, the result of this union, had now come to America to live with his mother and a newly acquired stepfather. Tommy insisted that I leave with him that very moment to spend the weekend with his family in Greenwich, Connecticut. And while I was flinging a few things into a bag, he filled me in on various details. Lefty Flynn had been one of the most famous of all Yale athletes. Fullback and All-American, he had also created impossible records in track winning everything except the high jump, and he only failed to win that, according to Tommy, because he was busy winning the mile at the time. He became a leading light in the Yale Glee Club and toured with it all over the country. When they were performing in Los Angeles, his monumental physique and good looks caught the eye of William Wellman, the director, and almost overnight, Lefty was starring in cowboy pictures. His instantaneous success had made him for a while um, unreliable, and during his third and last film, he had asked one day to be excused in the middle of shooting to go to the lavatory. Eight days later, he had been located by distraught studio executives in a hotel in Oklahoma City, sitting up in bed, playing a guitar, and painted bright blue from head to foot. In the room with him was a six-piece Hawaiian orchestra, which he picked up en route in San Francisco. The freezing winter seemed endless. Lefty took me skating, something I'd never tried before. On a pond near Greenwich, I got out of control and I charged into a girl who was figure skating round an orange. I cut the orange in half and knocked the girl over. Not the best way to start a romance, but this was no ordinary girl, as I noticed while she was helping me to my feet. She was small, 
almost tiny, with a wonderfully alive and pretty face, huge brown eyes and a cloud of auburn hair pushed out from beneath a woolly skating bonnet. We had some hot chocolate together, and I asked her if I might call her when I came to New York. Sure, if you want to, my name is Hudson, and you can find it in the book. My father's a doctor, and we live at 750 Park, Donald Hudson. A few days later, I called her. May I speak to Miss Hudson, please? This is she. Well, this is um, David Niven. You, you said I might call you. Who is this? David Niven. I'm sorry, I don't know the name. But don't you remember me? I, um, I cut your orange in half. I beg your pardon. Well, last weekend, skating at Greenwich, don't you remember? I, I knocked you over. You must be mistaken. I've never been to Greenwich in my life. I never go skating. You are Miss Hudson. Mrs. Hudson. Oh. Oh. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. You see, the Miss Hudson I thought I was calling said that her father was a doctor, Donald Hudson, living at 750 Park. I looked him up and she interrupted. Well, you found my husband's number and he's a lawyer. Dennis Hudson, and his address is 250 Park. She had a most attractive voice, and at the safe end of the telephone, I decided to press on. How is he, anyway? Who? Your, your husband, Dennis. He's very well, thank you. Is he, um, is he a good lawyer? There was a tiny intake of breath, but I sensed that she'd missed the logical moment to put down the receiver. Very good, thank you. Where's he work? Downtown. Well, then, how about meeting me for lunch somewhere... Uptown. Still, she didn't cut me off. Certainly not. I don't have lunch with total strangers. Ah, I said, that's the trouble with all you middle-aged American women. No sense of adventure. I'm not middle-aged. I'm 22. I settled smugly onto my dungeon bed. Well, then, that's really awful. I suppose you go off to one of those dreadful hen parties nibbling on the salad and gossiping. Would you please not bother me anymore? I'm not going to have lunch with you. I said, nothing, I just waited. I mean, she said, how do I know you're not a murderer or a kidnapper or something? I tell you what I'll do, I said. I'll wear a blue and white spotted scarf and a red carnation, and I'll stand on any street corner you name at one o'clock. Then you can walk by or drive by, and you'll know me, but I won't know you. Then you can take a good look, and if what you see standing on the street corner is all right and doesn't look like a murderer or a kidnapper, then we'll have lunch where I say... Uptown. How about that? A long, long pause. Finally, she said, All right, Madison and 61st Street, one o'clock. And she hung up. I was well pleased with myself, so I bought a dozen roses for Mrs. Hudson, and a few minutes before one o'clock, I took up my position. Round my neck, my blue and white scarf, in my buttonhole, my red carnation. Now, keep moving in sub-zero weather, whatever happens. Don't stand on windy street corners. By 1.30, I was shivering and blue. By a quarter to two, I couldn't feel the end of my nose, and the roses were going black. I was beginning to feel pretty stupid. Just before two o'clock, a girl walked by and smiled sweetly. Good afternoon, Mr. Niven, she said. I took off my hat, but she kept walking. Then another girl approached from the opposite direction. Good afternoon, Mr. Niven. Off came the hat. She kept going. Next, three came by arm in arm. Good afternoon, Mr. Niven, they chorused. Two went by on bicycles. Four more in a taxi. She must have been awfully busy rounding up her friends because her masterstroke was the singing group from Western Union. Mr. Niven? Yes, we have a message for you, sir. One, a two, a three. Happy lunchtime to you. Happy lunchtime to you. Happy lunchtime, dear David. Happy lunchtime to you. I do wish I could report a romantic aftermath to that episode, but there was none.